When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, good morning. I am uh, delighted to be back with you this morning. And before I jump into the sermon here, I have to pause just for a second and let you know that if you didn't make men's breakfast this morning, I told you I'm a crier, so you know that already, but you really missed just an incredible time. Um, For those of you that are familiar with the Psalms, in the Psalms we have book or chapter after chapter after chapter where the psalmists are telling their story of God's redemption again and again. And that's part of the point of the Psalms is to say, I was here, this was happening, God did this, and this is where I'm at. And that testimony is given again. And testimony, just like reading of the word, is such an important part of the church's liturgy. And this morning, what we heard was psalm-like in that very sense. I was here, God did this, and now I'm here. And I praise God for my brother's testimony this morning. And just would do a quick commercial. Um, if you have not carved out time in your schedule to make men's breakfast, men, there were about 30 there this morning. I see more than that here. Um, so men, I would just strongly encourage you, next men's breakfast that comes up, be there. Hear how God is working in people's lives to change Not only does it give you a chance to praise and rejoice and give God glory, but it also gives you the opportunity to hear and remember and understand that he can change me. He will not abandon his work. He will do it. So just um, get to men's breakfast if you haven't been there. You don't have all the facts. You're not really sure why they're low on money. 
but you're pretty certain that the need is pressing. Bills are mounting and stress is beginning to threaten the stability of their home. On Monday, you were planning to reserve an Airbnb at the beach for $4,000, a much-desired late-fall vacation that you've been saving for for months. But your mind wanders to the cross. You know what it is to be in need, if not physically, then certainly spiritually, to be exposed to the harsh elements of this world without a shelter. And you recall God's love for the needy, the sojourner, the person without a home. You know they must be aching. $4,000 would probably cover their mortgage for at least a month, maybe two. Before you know it, you've written a check. You've hit send on your cash app. It's in their hands and you are trying to move fast before the left hand discovers what the right hand has done. You and they are left marveling at God's mercy expressed in hospitality as it has been just briefly but gloriously magnified. She has been kicked out. She's made bad choices and she has been manhandled by bad people. Everything in the whole situation is bad. Her background, her family, her propensities. It's true. She is reaping what she has sown. But that's not the whole story. Your elder has just made a plea for somebody to consider taking her in for several months. The very thought of disrupting your family's life makes your stomach turn. She is an unknown quantity. And you have worked very, very hard to be sure that your life is characterized only by known quantities. No one responds to the elder's plea. Within 15 minutes of leaving your small group, you've got the whole thing rationalized. It never would have worked anyway. Where would she sleep? What if she has issues you don't know about? How will you get that many people through the bathroom in the morning? Hospitality, you tell yourself, has its limits. Your mind effortlessly, effortless, effortlessly sails onto tomorrow's schedule. Unfortunately, your bedtime reading takes you to Matthew 25, where Jesus discusses who it is that is being served when we serve the least of these. Your heart's hand is clapped over its mouth. To whose face? Did you close your door this evening? What is this hospitality all about, really? Is it simply pleasant meals with people who have uncomplicated lives or at least sophisticated enough to hide that they don't? Or, as I challenged you in April, is it about the kind of radical love for poor and needy strangers and sojourners that was demonstrated at the cross. If it is, then I believe that many of us, myself included, need to have our ideas about and our practices of hospitality reset to a biblical norm. Let's pray. Father, let us now press our ears up against the bosom of your word 
and strain to hear your heart. May you make our hearts like the psalmists who proclaimed, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Biblical hospitality may take on a hundred different shapes, sizes, and shades, depending on the need and the circumstances. But in the end, the underlying expression is always the same. Hospitality is a demonstration of a redeeming love, a saving love, a rescuing love, a helping love to the people that the Lord puts in our way. As we previously defined it is, it is kindness to strangers or generosity to those in need. This morning, we're taking a break from Luke and resuming what I call an occasional series that we began three months ago. I'm sure you've not forgotten a single point from that sermon. By way of a brief reminder, we spent the majority of our time that Sunday morning surveying the whole of Scripture to gain a broad understanding of the topic of hospitality in God's Word. What we, what we observed was the frequent expression of God's plain and undeniable love for the stranger and for the needy. In addition to that, we reflected together on our own position as strangers prior to God's adopting us into his household. The words to Israel in Exodus 23 should be as clear to us today as they were to the Israelites 5,000 years ago. You know the heart of a sojourner. Therefore, love the sojourner. Love the stranger. Love the foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, the needy. Because when apart from the gospel, we knew what it was to be unknown, to be unloved, to have our needs unmet. Beloved, when we show hospitality, we love as God has loved, demonstrating our intimate familiarity with the gospel and its transforming work in our lives. When we show hospitality, we give God glory and we give others good. And as we will see this morning, we not only show the redeeming love of God to others, we show the redeeming love of God to God himself. This morning, we want to take a closer look at what the New Testament has to say about hospitality. We'll do this first by considering several common distortions of biblical hospitality and then we'll focus the lens on two very familiar parables that, at a high level, are used by Jesus to draw a bright line between those who are truly people of the kingdom and those who merely think they are people of the kingdom. Interestingly, in both parables, hospitality is the distinguishing hallmark. Did you know that in the 1930s, Betty Crocker was nearly America's most popular woman, second only to Eleanor Roosevelt? Did you also know that there never was a Betty Crocker? She was and is still today merely the product of good marketing on the part of General Mills. Nevertheless, she was instrumental in shaping and forming traditional American ideas about hospitality. 
caught up in this shaping process, of course, was all of our society, including the church. Market ideas began defining hospitality as something that took place privately, behind closed doors, around meals. It was no longer a many-faceted reflection of the redeeming love that God had shown us, what we again defined as kindness to strangers or generosity to those in need. Rather, this modern distortion was characterized by a preoccupation with a demonstration of our own ability, our own skill, and our own resources put on display for all to see. Betty shifted the focus of hospitality. As food and the perfection of its preparation moved into the limelight, the way was open for this focus to be expanded to encompass the whole home. Fifty years later, in 1982, anybody know who's coming next? Yes, somebody said it, Martha Stewart, right on distorted our ideas further by so cleverly leveraging Betty Crocker's work to redefine our contemporary sense of hospitality. When Martha Stewart published her first book, simply titled Entertaining, it was an immediate bestseller, quote, gloriously photographed and filled with a wealth of information on the art of hospitality. It is probably safe to say that by the late 80s, our ideas of hospitality had been completely hijacked by experts who lived in perfect homes, hosted perfect parties, and prepared perfect foods. The real emphasis in showing hospitality became the performing of an elaborate facade which gave an illusion of mastery in the domestic arts accented by a practiced politeness which did everything but embrace a stranger or meet the needs of the needy. It may surprise you, or maybe not, but for a long time I actually loved to bow down to the twin gods of Betty Crocker and Martha Stewart. I won't explain in detail how this played, out itself, played itself out in our home because you'll never be able to see me the same. And I've forbidden my wife from discussing the uh, propensities that I had at that time. But I used to get pretty uptight about everything being perfect when guests came for a meal. Full play settings, menu was a guaranteed win, and the kids were carefully coached. And the more tense I became, the more clear it was that, it was that Betty, Crocker, Betty Crocker and Martha Stewart were my functional gods. Can anyone relate to that? Get a little tense before people come over? Earlier in our marriage, man, I was hyper on that. And I could see my wife thinking, why is this such a big deal? Well, I'll tell you why it was such a big deal. Welcoming guests into our home was not about God's love or even our guests' comfort, but about the display of my self-sufficiency, my perfection, and ultimately, my glory. When this happened... It hid the very thing that true hospitality is meant to reveal. We are a desperately needy people, and God is a generously giving God. It may be of some relief to you to know that you don't have to be a four-star chef, have a space exclusively dedicated to dining, or know how to perfectly flute the edge of your pie crust to exercise biblical hospitality. Hospitality is not mimicking Martha Stewart. 
having home decor that looks like a post-fixer-upper remodel, or perfectly timing the transition between warm appetizers and hot entrees. For believers, God, not the marketplace, shows us what true hospitality is. Hosting perfection in an environment of domestic beauty is not the only distortion that hospitality has suffered in our culture. Picture the host or the hostess whose main objective is to keep everything light, cheery, and comfortable in every possible way. In other words, there will be no environmental distractions. The yappy dog has been muzzled. There will be no failed food ventures. The bread is from H-E-B. The cut of meat is from H-E-B. The dessert is from H-E-B. And yes, that is a kindly jab at you Texans. And there will be no intrusive or risky conversation. Which reminds me of what a barber I had once said. I'll discuss anything with my customers except sex, politics, and religion. And for some of us, hospitality has become a lot like that. More about the illusion of placid lives than the reflection of a redeeming love that meets people in their need. One author commenting on this says that hospitality and honoring the truth seem to be opposed to one another. To be concerned for truth is to be inhospitable, and to be hospitable means being mushy on matters of truth. This reduces hospitality to a bland niceness, devoid of speaking the truth in love. We are compelled to get everyone in and out of the door without any awkward interactions, challenging conversations, or moments that reveal the depth of our shared human need, our sin, or even our earnest love for our Savior. We carefully steer the discussion away from sensitive topics, difficult pasts, current struggles. We'll speak of the gospel, perhaps, but we'll not share evidence of our need for it or venture to help others see theirs. Again, obscuring the very thing hospitality is meant to put on display, our need and God's provision. Is that how it should be? Well, we can turn to the Word to find out. So what does the Word of God tell us about hospitality? It certainly tells us much. In fact, more than I can fit into a three-sermon series, believe it or not. Nevertheless, we will consider this morning what the New Testament has to say about the who, the when, and the why I wouldn't of hospitality. So let's begin with the who by turning to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 42. And as you uh, turn or tap your way there, We're going to briefly answer from this passage three who questions. To whom should hospitality be shown? And listen closely, who should be given when we show hospitality? And who should be engaged in showing hospitality? So many of you will probably recall this passage. It's the passage of the Good Samaritan the context, context is a public setting when the 72 followers that Jesus had sent out to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near are reporting back on their work. During this moment, Jesus has a private exchange with his disciples to explain that many, 
Even the wise and understanding kings and prophets of the world have desired to see and hear this good news about the kingdom, but could not. It was hidden from them. Then, almost as if on cue, here comes a living illustration of just such one. Jesus is interrupted by a lawyer, a learned teacher of the law in verse 25, who seeks to test Jesus by asking, what must be done to inherit eternal life? And hence, as it goes in the ministry of Jesus, a parable for him. So let's pick up in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So Jesus begins by answering the lawyer's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? With a question, not uncommon for Jesus. What is written in the law, Jesus says. This was a source, no doubt, that the lawyer is very familiar with. And the lawyer gives a really good answer. He cites the first and second greatest commandments. And Christ affirms his answer as he says, Do this and you will live. The lawyer, however, is not satisfied. The text tells us that he desired to justify himself which is not an uncommon response when we are confronted with God's commands. Any of you that have children, you will know this. But what comes next is characteristic of not a Christian, but a mere law keeper. Verse 29 lays the lawyer's motivation bare as he asks, Who, who exactly is my neighbor? In essence, the lawyer is asking, Who am I required to love? 
He wants to know the limits, the parameters. How far must this love go? Does it extend beyond the bounds of what I have determined is appropriate? It's a dangerous question. Note carefully, however, this is not the question that Jesus answers. Instead, he poses a question to the lawyer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The camera now pans to the lawyer and Jesus exposes the religious leader's anemic understanding of the two greatest commandments. You see, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus asks, will you be a neighbor? The lawyer asked, just how far exactly does this loving your neighbor as yourself thing have to go to get eternal life? Jesus asks, are you willing to go as far as the gospel goes? Sacrificing time and treasure for a half-dead stranger lying in the dirt at the side of the road? The lawyer asked, can I keep the first greatest commandment in a way that allows me to minimize my commitment to the second greatest commandment? Jesus asked, will you keep the second greatest commandment in a way that shows you take seriously the first greatest commandment. By choosing the Samaritan and not the religious leaders to be the hero of this parable, Jesus makes clear that true religion versus mere law-keeping never disconnects the second greatest commandment from the first. All those that claim to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul, with all their strength and with all their mind, will love their neighbor as themselves. Hence, there should be no such thing as an inhospitable Christian. In the kingdom paradigm of hospitality, the first question is always, will I be neighborly? Not, is this person worthy of my neighborliness? Fortunately for my family, many of you are people who have decided that you will be neighbors. You remember that big storm we got in the third week of June when we were regularly registering heat indexes of 120 degrees? Not that anything's changed about the heat, but that big storm was big. Lots of lightning, lots of trees down. Some of you had trees through your roof, lots of power out. In my household, we lost power for about 18 hours. The knuckles, the ferruses, the wings all invited us over to shower or cool down if needed. The ardills showed up, allowed us to use their home as a charging station, even as they learned that a tree had punctured their roof in five places. The wings offered us breakfast at dinner. It sounds small, I know, but none of these families were calculating the cost or benefits of helping the berries. They just offered to help, not ignoring the needy before them. This kind of practice disposition, this almost reflexive and genuine offer of help, preps us as God's people for when those bigger opportunities for hospitality come. In our home, in my home, we try to say often as an outward indicator of the inward disposition the Lord calls us to, of course we're going to help before all the reasons not to start to clamor for attention. 
But to whom are we to show hospitality? The lawyer's question still stands. Who is my neighbor? If we return to the parable, the answer seems to be pretty all-encompassing. It's certainly the people you know, but it's also the people you don't. And it may be those with few needs, but definitely those with significant needs. This understanding appears to be supported throughout the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, hospitality was clearly focused on both those within the covenant community, that is the poor, the needy, widows, and orphans, and those outside the covenant community, sojourners, foreigners, strangers. In the New Testament, the same emphasis continues. In Christ's references to acts of hospitality in the gospel, Luke 10, the Good Samaritan that we just read, and Matthew 25, the least of these, it seems clear that no consideration is given to the in or out status of the recipient of kindness. In the epistles, we have passages clearly directing acts of hospitality to those within the body, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, and to those outside the body, Hebrews 13 and Romans 12. I think the short answer here is everyone, with perhaps several small exceptions that can be saved for another sermon. In a very simple sense, hospitality and the gospel are inextricably linked. For whom the gospel is appropriate, hospitality is appropriate. Look around this room. How discriminating was God in showing his hospitality to us? There are black, brown, and white people in this room. There are young and old in this room. There are rich and poor in this room. There are Texans and non-Texans in this room. What's more, a lot more, there are sinners of every stripe in this room. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, those who are not on the path to inheriting the kingdom of God are all in this room. Did God withhold hospitality from a single one of us? No. He washed us. He justified us, sanctified us, and adopted us. He made us part of his family and gave us a home. Returning to the Good Samaritan, it may be a good enough rule of thumb to stop and consider those human needs that the Lord places on your path. Don't practice a kind of religious piety that allows you to cross to the other side of the road. And may we be as intentional as God in reaching out to those who are not like ourselves. That is to say, those that we tell ourselves are not like ourselves. So what does this look like, very practically, in the midst of everyday summer life in the Woodlands, Texas? Well, let me tell you one of many places that I approach kingdom work much more like the lawyer than like the Good Samaritan. Our home functions something like the local bar for the kids of our neighborhood. All summer, we'll have a daily stream of three, four, five, sometimes even ten kids in, out, and through our home. 
They come to eat, to drink, to play, to swim, to hang out. Some I really like, some I don't. But the opportunity to show hospitality to each and every one is exactly equal. Here's the heart-exposing question. Will I show non-discriminatory hospitality? Being generous to the kid who takes his shoes off, greets me, and asks before rifling through my pantry, that's natural. That's easy. But will I show kindness to the kid who comes in without using the doorbell, walks straight through the kitchen as if I'm part of the decor, opens the refrigerator door and declares, don't you guys have anything to eat? Interestingly, if we read on in Luke 10, there is one more lesson to be gleaned in the realm of who. Who should be given when I show hospitality? It's almost as if Luke does not want us to reduce kingdom living to simple charity or humanitarianism, a Christless act of virtue. If you continue reading past the Good Samaritan into verse 38 through 42, it is recorded a second demonstration of hospitality right on the heels of the Good Samaritan. Picking up in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to the Lord and said, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and you're troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So make just this one observation with me on this passage that forces us to do a double take on the idea of hospitality. Martha is busy about preparing the meal, the food, the bread, the wine, the meat, what we tend to regard as the central elements of hospitality. Jesus, however, seems to suggest that Martha's hospitality is lacking and that Mary somehow has gotten it right. Martha, not Mary, is missing the meal. What Christ makes clear here is this. The most important portion that can be served in the course of hospitality is himself. Corey ten Boom is credited with saying, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. That deserves a little bit of thinking this afternoon. It seems he may have snagged Martha here. A hospitality that obscures Christ is not biblical hospitality. Beloved, there is nothing more rich, more filling, more pleasing than the bread of life and living water. If when we practice hospitality, we do not serve up Christ, we may have missed the one thing that is necessary. You can show hospitality with or without a portion of food, but you cannot show it without a portion of Christ. If he is not seated at the head of the table, if you will, you may be doing a nice thing. You may even be doing a just thing, but you are not doing a Jesus thing. 
If those are the who's of hospitality, let's move on to the when. The early New Testament church was known throughout the ancient world for its hospitality. A famous church historian has this to say about the hospitality of the ancient church. During the early centuries of Christianity, it was the local church more than any other which was distinguished by the generosity with which it practiced this virtue of hospitality. A living interest in the collective church of Christ throbbed with peculiar vigor vigor throughout the local church. And the practice, practice of hospitality was one of its manifestations. He's not the only author to note this. There are also those who were contemporaries of the early church that spoke of the predominance of Christian hospitality. If we turn to Matthew 25, this phenomenon may not be so hard to understand, given that these words and warnings of Christ would have been ringing in the ears of the believers in the early church. So in Matthew 25, we have Jesus engaged with the disciples in a conversation about the end of the age when he shares a series of short stories designed to contrast how the faithful and wise will live versus how the wicked will live as they wait for Christ's return. You may recall the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and then finally, a parable that describes the final judgment. In this final parable, the two different groups of people are referred to as sheep and goats. And as with the prior parable, this parable is designed to compare and contrast how believers versus unbelievers will live during this period of time between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. So let's start together in verse 34 of Matthew 25. And since we read this earlier in the liturgy, we'll just dip in and out to refresh our memories. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. Verse 44, then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what does this passage teach us about the when of hospitality? The time for hospitality is when the need presents itself. Consider Christ's description of the actions of the faithful and wise. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you provided. I was a stranger, and you welcomed. I was naked, and you clothed. I was sick, and you visited. I was in prison, and you came. 
As believers, we cannot come at hospitality with the mentality of our convenience or our capacity. The hungry, the thirsty, the naked, and the sick will never show up on our schedule. They will show up when our house is not clean, our bank accounts are not full, or our emotional state is not perfect. Consider the goats in the parable. It was not that the needy never crossed their paths, but they never saw the needy as those loved by Christ, valued by Christ, important to Christ. They ignored them. It reminds me, it reminds us of the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They saw the man at the side of the road. The parable's clear. But they walked on by. And don't forget the context of this passage. We're talking about the final judgment. Sheep will go to eternal life, but goats will go to eternal punishment. Be clear, that decision depends on nothing more than an individual's justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But with that said, a clear mark of a sheep, a faithful and wise servant, a true believer, is that they will see and respond to the human needs that are around them. But how does a believer cultivate this readiness to sacrificially serve in a world that is so jaded, so cynical, and so exhausted? Recall verse 40, and the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The way we cultivate in any time, any place readiness for hospitality is by remembering who the true recipient of our hospitality is. Do you believe for a minute that if the Levite or the Pharisee had seen God the Father laying at the side of the road in the ditch, they would have walked on by. No. Perhaps it is we who should be taking our shoes off when we have guests into our home. For when we engage in biblical hospitality, we host not only the poor and needy human faces before us, but we host Christ himself. We are participating in an act made holy by the true recipient of our kindness. Helpfully, and listen closely here, this understanding frees us entirely from the slavery of the mixed feelings we often experience when confronted with an opportunity for hospitality. We are not called to judge why A person is hungry or naked or imprisoned and make a determination as to their worthiness of our hospitality. Does the transsexual, the immigrant, the impoverished deserve my hospitality? Christ does not burden us with figuring that out. 
our hospitality begins with the intention of reflecting Christ's redeeming love for us. We who were once poor and needy, sojourners and foreigners, undeserving sinners. And our hospitality ends with the satisfaction of having served the king himself, independent of the deservedness or gratefulness of the ones who were served. Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So let's wrap up our time together this morning discussing the why I wouldn't of hospitality. You may be sitting here thinking, I'm not feeling it. Perhaps like the rich young ruler, you're beginning to understand that Christ and his gospel requires an all-in response. Remember that guy, the rich young ruler? He claimed to the face of Christ to have lived the upright life. But Jesus, seeing this man's heart, exposed the truth that the rich young ruler still loved something more than he loved Christ. In verse 21 of Matthew 19, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell all that you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, the call to hospitality has a heart-exposing effect. Recall the Good Samaritan, the sheep and the goats, and here the rich young ruler. It can quickly reveal where our allegiances lie. Perhaps we are often like Demas, in love with this present world. We don't want to give up our scheduled events, our recreational pursuits, our self-improvement programs, our stuff, our time, our money, our sleep, our comfort, our energy, our long-term plan. We want to follow Christ on our terms. Hospitality is okay until it threatens the things we truly love. You see, poolside barbecues on Sunday afternoon are much safer than biblical hospitality. Giving from our excess, that's easy. Giving that requires sacrifice or causes pain and discomfort, now that's a totally different story. If you are like the disciples, as you grow in your comprehension of what Christ is requiring, you might ask with astonishment as they did after hearing Christ's response to the rich young ruler, who then can be saved? If that's what you're calling us to, how in the world? The answer we all need to hear is the same answer that Christ gives to his disciples. Do you recall what it is? Anyone? Yeah, right on. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How so? Let me provide three encouragements to you before we close. First, gospel transformation of the believer is an inside job done by an outside agent. 
as you will hear explained frequently here at Risen, a believer's good works never arise out of a self-willed attempt to earn favor with God by doing the right thing. Rather, it arises from a transformation of our hearts caused by the work of the triune God. Our good works are the result, not the cause of that transformation. We show hospitality to strangers and the needy because Christ has shown a kind of hospitality to us that has transformed us. We have been invited to his table, into his home, and made a part of his family through adoption. Consider deeply Christ's hospitality and be confident that as you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're not relying on yourselves when God calls you to acts of hospitality that seem way beyond your means. With him, nothing is impossible. Joyfully work and pray and plan to be more hospitable while you rest confidently in God's promise to work in you. Trust me when I say, and those of you that have been walking with the Lord for a while will know this, He has a way of orchestrating the universe to cause us to grow. If you're wanting to show more hospitality and to pursue this, just ask God to give you the opportunity. He'll do the work. My second encouragement to you is to welcome the rebuke of Christ as an opportunity for the grace that comes through repentance. We don't talk about it enough, do we? Tell our kids all the time, repentance, repent. That is how grace comes. It's when we pivot away from the sin and to what God calls us to, that grace comes. It's not pixie dust. It's not something that gets sprinkled. You're not going to see any physical evidence falling out of the sky. When we obey, we will know grace for obedience. It's practical. Like Demas, like the rich young ruler, many of us still believe that the treasures of the world are prettier, more sparkly, of greater worth than Christ himself, and we therefore have not given ourselves wholly to Christ and to his kingdom's work. We're still holding out. We're hoping that he really doesn't require all of us all of our affections, all of ourselves. We prefer the illusion of satisfaction that the world holds forth, not the substance of Christ, which brings true, eternal satisfaction. Therefore, it is very difficult to give up the things that hospitality would sometimes require of us. To us, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And finally, Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life 
for my sake, will find it. Do you believe these words? If no, repent with me, because I don't fully believe them either. Part of growth and maturing as a believer is becoming increasingly convinced of the worth of our Savior. How does this happen? Through all the ways that the Scripture tells us it happens. Repenting of our idolatrous love of the world. Praying for a deeper understanding of God's love. And actively reading and believing the Word of God to build and strengthen our faith. Third and finally... If we return to the story of the rich young ruler, we find an encouragement that that perhaps we don't talk enough about in the church. Christ says this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Remember that old-fashioned idea of delayed gratification? While it may no longer be in vogue, it is still in force. For those who have learned to invest and wait, to sacrifice and wait, to give and wait, There's a great reward coming. And unsurprisingly, it is kicked off by an act of hospitality from God himself. When we come to that time of full consummation of our status as sons and daughters of God, an era of generosity by our king will be inaugurated with a feast at a wedding, what an angel calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. It will be like nothing we have ever experienced. And in light of it, all of our sacrifices in hospitality, in kindness to strangers, in generosity to those in need will seem as a light and momentary affliction. Just a quick word before we end. If you're over 55, retired, and you've just had enough, the world has disappointed disillusioned, defrauded, and you've seen enough to know that it ain't happening here on this side. I want to encourage you with this. Do not stop giving. Do not stop investing. Do not stop pursuing people, pursuing the Lord. You're convinced that the world ain't got nothing for you. You've seen You have your pile of money, you've got your great life, but you are still not satisfied or happy. You understand that the world is not going to come through for you. Praise God, you're in actually a really good position. Use what remains to go hard after people, to go hard after doing good. Ephesians 2.10 makes it really clear. Every morning when you wake up, there are good things for you to do. Lord prepared them in advance. He didn't forget. He didn't get off schedule. Your job is to look around and find them with this idea that I do this until I die. When I die, the party is on. 
everything I've been waiting for, hoping for, fulfillment, life, abundance. It's coming. It is really coming. And it begins with an act of hospitality. Beloved, it seems that God has bookmarked our lives as believers with hospitality. It begins with Jesus finding us in our poor and needy state as strangers to his kingdom, feeding us the bread of life and living water, clothing us in his robes of righteousness, providing for us a family and a home in his church, all through the ultimate sacrifice of his own son's life. And it ends with him meeting us finally, face to face, over a feast which I suspect will be more satisfying than any we've ever had. It is from this abundance of hospitality, past, present, and future, that we are empowered to show hospitality to others. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Not perfectly, not fully, not as we should, but we do love you. And even that is by your grace. Father, I ask that you would cause us to be a people who dwell deeply, not just internally, but externally with others on the hospitality that you've shown us. May we revel in the reality that our sins are forgiven, that you have clothed us in Christ's righteousness. You have provided for us in abundance, whether it's in material wealth or material poverty. We have you. And Father, as we rejoice in that together, may it very organically spill over into our lives in practical expressions of hospitality to others. How could we not be hospitable knowing the hospitality that you have shown us? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.